Good morning, church. What a uh, blessing to be together. Welcome to the Fellowship Center and to our live stream audience. Another beautiful Louisiana winter day here for those of you that are not here. You remember the good old days before COVID? We just had the Louisiana crud. You remember the crud? 40 degrees drop and rise in temperature, right? And then the sinus cavity reaction to that. Now you've got all that, plus you got to wake up. Can I taste? Can I smell? Do I have fever? Do I need to go get tested? The good old days. Pre-COVID, right? So um, this uh, Friday, Lord willing, Lisa and I will be in the Washington, D.C., where Lisa will be speaking to hopefully over a million people at the March for Life. And um, we're super excited about that. Uh, yeah, you can applaud. She has a, a two-minute speech, which, you know, I can't even get going up here in two minutes, right? But she's uh, got some great things to say. I'm super excited about the opportunity. She's going to speak that night as well. We're, we'll be traveling home, but the ne- next Sunday at 2 o'clock uh, it, it, here in West Monroe on the 23rd, there's going to be our March for Life. It's going to start down at the uh, First Baptist parking lot, march over into Monroe, and then have a rally there. So I just want to encourage you guys locally uh, to take part in that. Normally, Lisa and I would be right there at the front of the line. Just know that we're going to be at the bigger one, but that our hearts are here because every community has to speak up for the unborn. Amen? Amen. And look, we're making some traction. Lord willing, we may begin to turn the tide in our country against the abomination of Roe v. Wade. So keep that in your prayers uh, as well. Well, our scripture reader today is uh, Bailey K. Stone. Bailey, if you'll come up. Bailey is 14 years old. She goes to Claiborne Christian. Normally, you know, I get someone from the family will send me a little bow or from the person that's reading our scripture. But since this is my second oldest granddaughter, I feel like I know her pretty well. <laughs> and I would call Bailey a, a Renaissance girl because she can cook biscuits and pound cake with the skill of Mammal K, but she can shoot game animals at a Papa Phil. Now, if Dad were here today, he would say, if you got a teenage girl that can cook and shoot, there's hope for America, right? <laughs> so I think that deserves a round of applause. We call her BK. 1 Corinthians 3, 10-11. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Thank you, BK. BK is uh, also my assistant on Sunday mornings, if you see her down front, and my bodyguard, so don't mess with me. I'm telling you, she can shoot. It's really good. Um, we got a lot to cover today, so I want to dive right in. Last week, we started in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9, where Paul has this beautiful description of a very imperfect and flawed church. And by the way, as we established last week, that describes every church. Amen? Including the one right here at our beloved WFR. He said they were sanctified, they were gifted, they were blameless believers who were in fellowship with Jesus Christ, and there would always be the faithful God to be there to serve him. And that's the beauty that we have. He serves us as we serve him. 
He went on to describe in verses 10 through 17 of chapter one, the first issue. And there's there's a this is a book of issues, but it's a book of issues that apply, you know, worldwide and also time wide, because even 2000 years later, we struggle with some of the same things that we see in this text. In this particular situation, their first issue was distraction and disunity. He said, I want you to have a perfect unity, but you can't do that if you're distracted and you're not focused on Jesus. Their particular problem is that they were deifying men. They were raising up men and saying, I follow this man or that man instead of Christ. And anything or anyone that we elevate above the throne of Christ will always end in failure. And so that's why he's challenging them in this text. Now, last week we talked about there being two sources of power. Because if we're striving for unity, we need something, right, to fuel us. Because it is easy to get distracted. Do you remember these words? Have you ever heard these words? We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect, what? Union. You see, even our founders, they didn't say a perfect union, but a more perfect one. We're going to strive to have unity. How do we do that? According to the founders, we establish justice. We ensure domestic tranquility. We provide for the common defense. We promote the general welfare. We secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity. That would be us. We do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. Have we gotten distracted? I mean, think about how simple those words are to self-govern. And yet over the course now of 250 plus years, you see how easy it is to lose sight of unity by distraction. Now we have a bloated government that doesn't want to be ruled by the people, but by a certain group of people. That's how easy it is to lose what first seems so simple. And that illustrates exactly what we're talking about in the church. I believe the two are related, by the way, because the more distracted God's church has become in this great experiment called America, the more disunified the culture has become. The more people have looked away from God. And we see it happen. I mean, this called the post-Christian era. I want you all to know something. I didn't get the memo about post-Christian because I'm rocking on. I don't know about you. But I'm saying the more unified we are by folks on Jesus the more that we change our culture, not the other way around. So that's why this text is so important. Unity has two sources of power, two pillars of strength. And they are, according to this text, the message of the cross, that is salvation for our sins, and the wisdom of the spirit, which is a transformation of the heart, soul, mind, and strength. So those two things put together, according to this text, are what's going to bring us to perfect unity. And remember, it won't be us because we're diverse. We're different. We have different opinions. But there is one thing, one perfect thing that we can be unified in, and that's Jesus Christ. We get that straight. The rest will remain in unity. He's the perfection. We're the ones who follow him. Look, this isn't the only time Paul would talk about this. He he did it across all his platforms. You got the 21st century word for all of his letters. He said the same thing. 
In Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, here's what he said. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He has taken it away, nailed it to a cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That's salvation. That's the power of the message of the cross. That's where we start. That's first and foremost. Now, the other side of this, he mentions in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. He tells the Romans, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See the transformation? So it's not just salvation, but it's also being transformed. And that, again, happens only by divine origin. Jesus provides sacrifice for sin. The Holy Spirit provides the pathway to transformation. That's how we stay unified. That's the message. And you'll find that across all of the New Testament, including here in our text. Last week, we talked about the message of the cross. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 118, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So this is always a choice. This isn't forced. People have to make a choice. Do we follow the wisdom of the world? Do we think the theory of evolution is powerful enough to then shape our worldview or whatever the thought of the day may be? Or do we decide that the foolishness of the cross and Calvary by a Palestinian, by an Israeli, by whatever you want to put a label on somebody from that region gave their lives for you? I mean, some people will say that's crazy. But for those of us who believe, we say it's everything. It motivates my life. It transforms who I am. It's a clear choice. Human wisdom versus the wisdom of God. And we'll, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about, you know, college kids on a campus and we'll lament the fact that there's so much peer pressure. And I get that. It is tough. But college students, it's really simple. You walk in those doors, you sit down, and you know you're going to hear human wisdom. But as you sit there, you know in your heart that godly wisdom triumphs. Never forget that. No matter, you can listen, you can learn. I remember sitting in class and talking about Lucy and this bone connected to that bone, and the next thing you know, we got evolution. And I'm remembering my heart thinking that's so foolish if you believe in a God, the creator. But I really believe that. Because to me, the foolishness of God trumps the wisdom of man. It's it's that simple, but not easy, right? He said in verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. He made it two clear choices even between Jew and Gentile. You see, the Jews missed the Christ. 
because they were only looking for the signs. And yet the signs all pointed to him and they still missed it. The Gentiles, they were looking for a complexity. You remember Acts 17 when Paul was there on Mars Hill? I mean, the arguments of the day, the philosophies of the day. But in the end, it came down to one simple thing. You know that unknown God that you talk about? I want to make him known to you. And he told him about Jesus. Simple, but not easy. He says in verse 26, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. You weren't very influential. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So we couldn't say it was us. God chose the lowly things, the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. No one will stand there on that last day, folks, and say, I did this. Everybody's going to be down on one knee because then they'll know. It is because of him, God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Did you catch that? You can have neither of those, none of those three without Jesus first. Simple, clear. He goes on in chapter two to sort of make a transition because now he begins to talk about transformation. I love it that Paul is always willing to put his personal life right into the mix. And that's what he does in in verse one. Listen to this. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. Now, Paul's being very humble here, but I have to say, looking back. With his education background and the stuff that he said was a big deal before his conversion, he was a pretty big deal. He was an up and comer. He was one that other Jews would look to and say, now this guy, this is all a Tarsus. Keep your eye on him. He's got something. But he said none of that mattered. You see, he started on that road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. He was full of vim and vigor. He knew what he was going to do. He was totally focused in on the work of God. And then he found out it was all wrong. And he's struck down. He's laying there. He's groveling around. He can't see. And he realizes that none of that mattered without Jesus. I love his personal testimony about when Christ faced him. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ. Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Well, that doesn't sound like the mighty Saul, does it? Because it wasn't. When we compare ourselves, our abilities, our talents, our gifts, whatever it is we hold on to, our possessions, when we compare that to the almighty God and his son, Jesus, we wind up in fear and trembling. We are nothing without the power of Jesus. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. What are you saying, Paul? I'm saying, don't hold me up. I am nothing. That's what he's saying. 
And the same thing I would say to that any leader of God's people. In verses 5 through 16, he's going to explain how that happened. How did he go from being that strong, you know, vocal doer of God's word, he thought, to being a trembling person who says, you know what, without Christ I'm nothing. I totally focus on him. Paul was changed. The Holy Spirit, when it indwelled this man, changed him. It humbled him. And he spent all of his ministry describing that humility. He said in verse 5 of chapter 2, So that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Verse 7, We declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden, and that God has destined for our glory before time began. Verse 10, These are the things God has revealed to us by His Spirit. Verse 12, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Verse 16, but we have the mind of Christ. You see the progression as you run through that text? God's power and wisdom were destined before our creation to be revealed in us when we called on his name. Submitting ourselves to the message of the cross and receiving the Holy Spirit that we may now understand what grace really is. That's it in a nutshell. There is no way without the Spirit of God you can ever understand the truths of the universe. We can send out Hubble telescopes. We can go to Mars. We can do amazing things. We can build bases on the moon. Everybody's looking out saying, what's the purpose of everything? You'll never figure it out unless you have the Spirit of God. You'll miss it. That's how crucial the transformation process of understanding the wisdom of the Spirit is. He said, well, Al, I just want to wake up and know what I need to do today. That's where it starts. You don't always wake up thinking about, you know, the transformational universe. It's just like, God, what do you want me to do today? But as simple as that one question is, is also answered in the same ones about what are our origins and where are we going? Because let's face it, doesn't it just boil down to that? How did I get here? What am I doing here? And where am I going? If you can't answer those three simple questions, I'd say you probably need to look back and see, have I embraced the message of Christ? And does the Holy Spirit of God live in me? Because I know the three answers to that question. And I am ready for anybody that asks me. I don't even need notes. I got it. That's what Jesus did for us. And that's what he's trying to convey to the Corinthian church. And look, people can keep listening to John Lennon songs all they want to. Right? Oh, that makes us feel so good. We're just going to imagine. Well, keep imagining. We're going to go to self-help book section. We're going to go to seminars. We're going to figure this thing out. Nope. We're going to go to conferences on world peace, climate change, things that are going to draw us together. Nope. We're going to save the planet, lower the temperature in 10 years. Nope. You don't have your hand on the thermostat, but I know someone who does. 
We only find unity and peace through the blood of Jesus and the Holy Spirit of Christ. That's it. Now, all these other things are interesting, but they're never going to lead to what we need. That's just the truth of the matter. Now, so Paul does something interesting in chapter 3. He gives this, and, and as a teacher and preacher through the years, I understand the power of illustration. He's going to give a couple of small illustrations, but then a really big illustration to prove his case of what he's trying to get the Corinthians to understand. Because remember this, you've got to keep these first three chapters in perspective. If you don't understand the message of the cross and embrace it, if you don't understand the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and allow it to grow and lead you into the way you should live, then you're not going to find unity. And so he's going to go back and sort of restate the problem. And he's going to tell them again what the answer is. Look at 1 Corinthians 3 verse 1. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. That's harsh, but true. That's what they were. This is the first little mini illustration. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. Why were they displaying worldly tendencies? Because they weren't living by the tendencies of what Paul had told them to do. Embrace Christ, live by the Spirit. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, you are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? Notice that three times he says they're worldly. Twice he says, are you acting like mere human beings? This is bigger than that. You're bigger than that. I see churches fighting over issues and this, that, and the other. I want to say, come on, guys. What are we, a school board meeting? Come on. Jesus is Lord. Let's remember that. What, after all, is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe? Why would you want to say you follow these men over Christ? Come on, man. As the Lord has assigned to each his task. So he starts out with this illustration that you're acting like infants. And then he says in verse 6, he gives another small illustration. He says, it's like you're, it's like you're in a field. You're a plant. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But God has been making it grow. You see that? Only God can really grow the plant. I'm just a seed planter. I'm just a guy that puts water. Wouldn't you say that's the same with you, any of you gardeners out there? I mean, are you, are you the one making the plant, the food? You're just a part of the process. God is the one that actually makes something grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. But only God who makes things grow. That's both in the physical world and the spiritual world. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field. So we're just part of that process in which God does what he does in us. But you notice that people tend to be more unified when they work together. I learned that at working at camp. Going on mission trips, everybody gets in, they got a little job, and all of a sudden we look up and people are coming to Christ. Everybody says, man, we had a 
awesome camp. What happened? Man, a lot of people came to Christ. Exactly. One person was the seed planter. One person was the water. One person was the one that went out and, you know, made sure everything was clean around the area and got the weeds out. Another one did this. Another one did that. And voila, we got a growing plant. That's what we do to find unity. Now, the big illustration he says for last, I call it the big finale. He says in verse 9, you are God's building. Now, Peter's going to refer to it as uh, each of us are like a living stone as part of a greater structure. But in Paul's case, he's like you're your own little structure, but together you make this grand structure. You are a temple. In fact, he's going to tell you how to build a temple. Look at verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. So you see, you got the foundation, and now there's the layers that start. Each one should be careful, though, how he builds. Listen to that. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So we got Christ as the foundation. Paul says we come along, and now we're building up as people come to him. Jesus is the only foundation, remember that. But he says, be careful how you build, meaning that we play a role in how effective our particular temple is going to be. I don't know about you, but I want to be effective. I want to be useful. I want to be able to praise God and give him worship as part of his human holy temple. What do you do to do that, Al? Look at verse 12. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. All the things that the world says, now that's what you want to build with. Buy gold. It'll always be there. Mm, nope. The fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss and yet be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So he's not talking about salvation, because you're built on the foundation of Jesus. He's talking about how you hold up in the process. Because I got news for everybody here, everybody listening. If you hadn't experienced fire, fire is coming. That's how work is tested. You're going to walk through some flames in this life. It may be a sick child. It may be a tragic loss. It may be a bad report from the oncologist. It may be a troubled and challenged marriage. It may be a divorce. Fire is coming. And that's when you determine whether your temple has been built with the right thing or not. That determines how you come out on the other end. Not about salvation. He says you've laid on the foundation of Christ. You're going to be saved. But do you want to be the one that barely comes out with no eyebrows and no hair? The answer is no. We want to be people who set an example of purity in life. And other people look to and say, now there is a temple of the Almighty God. That's the example that we want to leave for people. He says in verse 16, 
Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. In other words, you don't have to worry about things in this life left undone. They won't be left undone. Yeah, but Al, I got some, I got some bad stuff out there that people did to me. God's going to make that right. You don't need to worry about that. God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. So somebody says, you know, I'm going down to the sanctuary. You are the sanctuary. We're going to go by the temple. You are the temple. And as this temple is being built up, there's more praise. There's more greatness that God can display in his people. We can do anything. Paul would sum up Galatians by saying it this way to the Galatian church. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. There's that message of the cross. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. There's the wisdom of the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. And there's the unity. That's a great way to live. Amen. That's how we start in the book of Corinthians. But that's how all of us should start. Paul wraps up this whole thought in chapter 3, 18 through 23. And so that's how I'm going to wrap up today. And there's four things that he says in those five verses. The first thing he says is don't deceive yourselves. Don't deceive yourselves. What does that mean? That means it must be easy for us to deceive ourselves. Do you think people might fall into the trap of thinking it really is about me? That I really am a big deal? I think so. Don't deceive yourself. You're really not that big of a deal. It's not about you. Yeah, but how? I've got hopes and dreams. Yeah, we all do. But only that which lines up with what God has for me laid out, his will. As long as I'm functioning in that process, I'll never be a big deal, but he always will be a big deal. You know why Lisa's getting to speak to a million people? Because she bent the knee to Jesus. Otherwise, she wouldn't have got asked. She's not a big deal. Jesus, big deal. So you get to worrying about it and you're challenging. You got some, something you're facing. Jesus is the big deal. Don't deceive yourselves. If you think you are wise, in other words, if you think you are a big deal, become a fool, Paul said. Does any of you want to become a fool? I mean, I don't like the concept of it. So if I just don't think I'm that big of a deal, I don't have to become a fool. Because I just give it to Jesus. But he says, if you do, become a fool. Step away. Don't look to humanity, but look to Jesus. So say it's not about you. But you feel so weak that you need someone to be Christ for you. So you hold up some preacher or maybe your spouse. Maybe it's your grandmother because she had such a great faith. Whoever it is, don't do that. Don't put that pressure on them. Don't look to them to be your savior, to be your leader. Look to Jesus. He's got it. You can do it if you follow him. I spent time on a throne. And let me tell you something, it ended in disaster. 
Look to Jesus, not to humanity. And then the last thing he said is all things are yours. Whether leaders, whether the world, whether life, whether death, whether present, whether future, all are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Man, I couldn't think of a better way to leave this section than that. All is yours? What are you saying, preacher? I'm saying we are co-heirs with Christ of everything. And that's from the poorest person in the poorest country, in the poorest place on the planet, to the richest man there is. None of that matters. If you're a co-heir of the universe, all is yours. Present, future, past, Christ owns it all. You say, well, what would that make us look like? Unified believers who the world may say is foolish, but who we know is the wisdom of God. If you've never taken that first step to embrace the message of Jesus, today's the day. If you've lost your sight along the way, maybe you've held something or someone up in a place it shouldn't be. You know, the beautiful thing about this is all we got to do is just say no more. I messed up. It's called repentance. It just says, Christ, let me reestablish. You are Lord. I am not. It's that simple. Not easy, but simple. If you have that need today, why don't you come while we stand and while we sing? Uh-huh.